0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, we have a very special interview. Rachel Kranz is an incredibly accomplished writer and journalist, and she is the author of the brand new book. It's actually not even out yet as we record this, Open an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. And that's going to be available on January 25th. And she's also just happens to be a passionate and accomplished animal rights advocate. Her conversation with Jasmine ranges over a really wide variety of topics and is, hands down, one of the most fascinating and provocative you will hear anytime soon.
1: I am smiling so big as you're talking about this because I have been on the edge of my seat waiting for this to air. I actually had the opportunity to do this interview in person with Rachel. And as you mentioned, it is a very different type of interview for us, but it is one that I love doing and one that I, as a listener, love listening to. So I am curious how all of you like it and I'd love to hear from you about it. But it reminds me a little bit of the interview I gave to Ivana Lynch that aired in December last month regarding her new book, which is also a memoir. So both Evie and Rachel have that in common, and I have that in common with them too. And uh, the, the similarity between all three of our memoirs is that it isn't exactly a memoir about veganism, but all three of the books in their own way touch on veganism because obviously the memoirists are vegan and rachel's especially i I think weaves together the unfolding of how she is showing up for herself and for the world more authentically in ways that are challenging but ultimately liberating and for so many of us as we go down the road of becoming more authentic people veganism is an obvious thing that happens to us so
0: yeah i can see these kinds of of interactions and hopefully these kinds of interviews on our henhouse becoming more common because more and more people are going vegan and it becomes an important part of their life, but it's not, they're not necessarily centrally an animal rights activist. You right. know, animal rights activism is just incorporated into their life because they find out what's happening and they're smart.
1: Rachel wouldn't do anything in this world unless it was ultimately benefiting animals too. And she's a good friend of mine. She's also a board member for our henhouse. And we are, we sort of nerd out together as writers. So the reason why I did this in person with her is because she brought herself on a little to a writing cabin in Vermont. And I came out for a couple days, uh, a few months back. And I, I was like, oh, we have to do this interview in person. And we just, it, it, we had so much fun. And I, I'm really, really excited for everyone to hear it. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will also be continuing my conversation with the brilliant Rachel Krantz. If you are a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at our henhouse.org slash donate. We have a lot of flock perks that we offer.
0: Yeah. Being a flock member of our henhouse is a very big deal. I won't deny it. So (laughs) People are probably putting it on their resumes. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Oh my surprised. god!
1: Okay, okay. Well, There's if sarcasm. you are a
0: flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And we have some very inspiring guests and some excellent conversations about activism and about life in general. So if you're a member, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine.
1: Yeah, those are going really well. I've been I've been really enjoying it. We have so many new Flock members. Our last Flock Friday Zoom call, which are generally like an intimate small little slice of our Flock members as a whole, had like 50 people there. So it was so fun and I was so nervous. <laughs> like. We had a recent guest. We had a Crystal Heath there. And so she's a vet. Of course, you've heard her podcast interview with Marianne. It, it was just so cool to have the opportunity to like just have that conversation with her in real time. Speaking of mentions about veganism, that was such a bad segue. But anyway. <laughs>
0: Speaking of that, You I, are I the wanted... mistress of bad segues. No, so, I am not. So bravo, I beg your pardon. I am no, the mistress. I'm right, I, I, I didn't mean that in a negative way. I meant difficult me. segues. You make you, you make completely non segues sound like they're sort of segues.
1: All right. That I will that I will take. I appreciate you making amends to me in in real time. Anyway, so we've talked before about like vegan mentions here and there. I have certainly told you about the ones on Star Trek that I hear on the Connors, but I was watching Queer Eye. There's a new season of Queer Eye and, I almost always just fast forward through the cooking segment with oh, Anthony. Anthony. Anthony with this yeah.
0: like, r- ridiculous cooking segment. It's that just always, like almost virtually always features dead animals or their secretions. Oh, yeah. And and is is like, you know, like a grilled cheese sandwich or something. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So I want to tell you about like two back to back episodes that I saw. Uh and, and so the first one is that instead of focusing on a person, in the in the latest season, there is an episode where the guys, the I should say the the Fab the Fab Five, because I know that Jonathan Van Ness actually doesn't identify as a guy.
0: The the Fab Five that brings up an interesting topic because the, I use the word guy frequently as a, a gender neutral kind of term.
1: Hey, guys. Yeah, no, I do. I do that, too. I think. Interesting. I I, I never kind of thought of that. No, I have a friend who hates that. She thinks it's like super anti-feminist. And I get that. But uh, like, hey, guys, to me is different than saying the guys on the show. So that's why I made that. Yeah, little... no, I, I, I hear you. Anyway, so the Fab Five went into a school in Texas, like a high school, and they helped this prom committee put together a prom. And one of the components, you know, these kids were very. Uh, impacted in all the worst ways by COVID, and you know it was a very heartfelt episode. I was super grouchy at the beginning, like I don't want to watch this, and then I was like weeping two minutes later. So anyway, there was this food scene where they're trying to figure out what food to make, and th- one of the kids on the prom committee is like, "Well, we have to have a vegan option," and Anthony goes, oh see, look how selfless you are. Like, you just want to make sure that vegans have an option. Like, that is just so wonderful. You are such a wonderful person. Like, his reaction to this kid saying what I think is very obvious and what I think the kid thought was very obvious was so over the top, and it went on and on and on and on and on.
0: And didn't have anything to do with him being selfless because he cared about animals. He just cared about kids who want to be vegan. (laughs) That's ridiculous. He's an idiot. I have to say, I didn't watch this episode because I watched the first two episodes of the season over at your house, and I'm just completely over it. That show it just goes on and on and on. It's the same thing every week. It's like, all right, all right, I get it.
1: Okay, so the next episode, though, is it features this woman who runs a sanctuary, basically, in, in Texas. And the sanctuary does have farmed animals. And so we're watching this, and I'm like, I, what's going to happen? And... Moore says if they eat animals, I, we can't watch it. Like it just, we have to turn it off. It would be too upsetting. So like within the first five minutes, Anthony says, so do you, do you follow a plant-based diet? And then, and then before he lets her answer, he goes, because it seems to me that more and more people are like moving in that direction. In fact, I think we're all moving in that direction and whether we're just plant-based at home or just going fully plant-based. And I was like, what crack has he been smoking like this has been they must have gotten complaints oh my god they it was have. like night and day and then she said yeah just- oh good for all of you vegan activists if you
0: if you've written to queer eye this is you you so get the credit then, yes, for this she is
1: she is vegan
0: i of course didn't write to them i just complained about it so
1: she is vegan by the way excellent her entire family isn't, but you know, it, it was a giant leap for, it was a giant leap for Queer Eye, in my opinion. And, and after we had already planned on discussing this, I saw that on the Flock Facebook group, other people on the Flock Facebook group were discussing it too. And I'm like, yeah, I know we keep saying there's vegan mentions of, of everything. And I really think things are, are changing like from the vegan mentions a few years ago, were so much more hostile than they are now.
0: Well, I mean, they're, it does seem they come up all the time and kind of randomly and really not heavily discussed. But I am actually watching because I watch very peculiar television. I am watching a, a show from Australia. I love Australian television. Uh, thank you, everybody listening who's from Australia. You have great TV. Uh, from the 2000s, I think. It's old. It's called Pack to the Rafters there's a, like 42 seasons so i'm not sure i'll get through all of them but i've been watching the first season and one of the characters is vegan she is a positive character so i'm but but the veganism is totally like being made fun of it's like where she really you know she, like her yoga and her 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 veganism and she makes food all the time and it's always terrible and everybody makes fun of it I did think like, like, I don't think on American TV, we would have even known there was such a thing as veganism in the 2000s. So I do think it's more more progressive. But mm. yeah, like, I just don't, I think that if this show were made now, and there was a vegan character, it just would not even be a thing.
1: So do you mean the aughts, by the way, when you're saying? The yeah. 2000? We,
0: isn't it amazing that we still do not have a name for that decade? Uh, the pre-vegans, I don't know. Yeah, between 2000 and 2010. I think that's what it's from, somewhere around there. It's it definitely post-90s, so. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, we even, like, some, some Broadway theaters are currently, since the shows are closing early because of COVID, or they're having other COVID-related issues, some Broadway shows are letting people buy a, a virtual ticket and they're broadcasting it. So we were able to do that the other day, which was so, so cool to be able to do. And even in this, like, play, there's, like, this, like, Vegan mention. It's it's literally everywhere. I think we've made it. I think we're there. I think we are at the beginning of the tipping point.
0: Yeah, and it was kind of just a random mention, though the the show was basically a very foodie show, and it was all like just all of it was was meat and dairy. Like it it, it was kind of depressing to watch that part.
1: Well, I said, I mean, because we weren't actually in the theater, and I could talk out loud without someone yelling at me. Although you did yell at me, but I said it's all lab grown <laughs> you know <laughs> speaking of things you're not supposed to say anymore i know lab grown has fallen out of favor yeah. but I, I like to say it every now cultured. and then say cultured oh, I, I think i think cultured is the word i'm using this week we are being cultured by watching theater and the meat they are talking about is obviously cultured meat that's the bottom line here yeah
0: but that what a what another um brilliant relationship you have set up there
1: And another segue.
0: Let's shut up now and get to this interview because I really want everybody to hear it. Rachel Kranz is a journalist and she is one of the founding editors of Bustle, where she served as senior features editor for three years. Her work has been featured on NPR, The Guardian, Vox, Vice, and many other outlets. She served as lead writer for Mercy for Animals and is a reporter on The Vegan Beat. She is the recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. She is also a member, get this, of the board of directors of Our Hen House. (laughs) And she will be joining Jasmine right after this.
1: Hi everyone, Jasmine here. As you know, one of our main goals of Our Hen House is to provide inspiration and helpful resources to caring people like you who wanna join us in changing the world for animals. Well, we've got one for you. The start of the new year is the perfect time to encourage your vegan curious friends and family to give plant-based eating a try. We invite you to share with them through Veganuary. Let your loved ones know that there's never been a more important time to try a plant-based diet for the planet, for the animals, and for yourself. Anyone can sign up today to get free recipes, tips, and goodies. Yeah, that's right, it's totally free. So check out veganuary.com, that's V-E-G-A-N-U-A-R-Y.com, and share it freely. Join also so that you could support them on their wonderful journey to change the world for animals. You can also share on social media with the tag at veganuary. Let's make 2022 the year of positive change for animals. Welcome back to our Henhouse, Rachel.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me back,
1: Jazz. I am so excited. I've been excited about this for a long time and I know I say that a lot, but I really, really mean it so big. <laughs> I'm so completely thrilled that you have agreed to chat with me about your new memoir, Open an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. And if you're listening to this and are wondering if this is still the animal rights podcast you tuned into, I assure you it is. (laughs) And, And while this is indeed a slight pivot from your regularly scheduled program, it's also not because as you know, if you're a regular listener to our Hen House, I strongly believe that one of the biggest and best ways we can change the world for animals is through the power of personal narrative. And so while Rachel's book is indeed centered around a topic that, although I find interesting, is not the theme of our Hen House, much like my 2016 memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough, and yes, that was indeed a shameless plug, (laughs) Her story is mainstreaming veganism because, well, Rachel is vegan. And Rachel is, of course, the protagonist in her own story. So today, Rachel and I are going to be chatting about her book, Open, from the vantage point of her veganism. The thing about Open is that it's not only, quite honestly, one of the most raw and vulnerable and honest, inspiring, thoughtful, impeccably written books that I have had the honor of reading. But it's also a top tier publication with a major publisher. Open is a book that people will, well, open. (laughs) And since her veganism is a core part of her story as she's telling it, in fact, she goes vegan during the book, so we get to experience that basically in real time. I think it's an invitation for her readers, many of whom I presume won't be from the vegan community, to explore veganism as an extension of authenticity. Because... Rachel, authenticity is the name of the game here, wouldn't you say? Though it's a book about your journey into the complicated world of polyamory, it's really about a young woman discovering who she is.
2: Yes, absolutely. And Jasmine, thank you so much just for having me on here to talk about this. It really means so much to me and your kind words. It's just like, I'm I'm a little bit choked up hearing and I, I just really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. And I know that I'm one of the first
1: interviews that you've that you've done. And so I feel really honored because I know this book is going to be a big hit. And I like was watching the movie in my head <laughs> while I was reading. It. it was super weird because it's your memoir and and I know you so well. So I actually was like, oh, I remember when that happened. But then I was like, oh, what's happening to character Rachel in the book that I'm reading? And then I was like, wait, the movie is playing in my head. Like <laughs> a lot of things were going on, but I want to get into the vegan aspects of your story and your book. But listen, before we can, let's take a step back because I'm really going in, in big here. Can you tell our listeners how you would describe what Open is about?
2: Sure, yeah. Open is the story of my life from ages 27 to 31, which is for a lot of people like a very formative time. Um, It centers around my primary relationship, which was also my first open relationship. And it was also the relationship that turned me vegetarian and that I became vegan in. And so you see me kind of going through a lot of changes throughout those years, exploring a lot of different things and kind of centering around the question, what does liberation mean in all forms, really? What does bodily autonomy mean? And the answer is often very much more gray than I'm expecting in my journey, especially in the realm of the romantic
1: I guess I didn't properly warn you that people under 40 should be careful about writing memoirs <laughs> because I did it and now I'm in my 40s and wondering what the hell I did. But here you are,
2: my younger friend, airing your dirty laundry for all to see. How does it feel? It's scary, but I also have less to lose than some people and that I, I was doing this from a oddly young age, coming of age in digital media, working at Bustle, writing a lot of really quickly churned out Personal essays, many of which had a lot to do with veganism, which we can talk about later. But I came to look back on that as not exactly regretting it, although some of the pieces I wish I had the right to take down or change, but just kind of regretting how quickly I had to write so many things. It was, you know, how it is. It was like within an afternoon, I would write a personal essay that still sometimes is one of the Top searched results. And it's like, oh, I wish I had a little more time. So, writing a book for me was an opportunity to slow down and really process things more and to try to, you know, continue living life on the record in a way that's hopefully going to be beneficial more than harmful to other people. But you see me really grappling with that throughout the book, knowing that it'll remain frozen at this moment in print of, you know, however I could best explain it at the moment the book is finally turned in for its last round of edits, but knowing that by the time it's out in the world, like now that I'll have evolved beyond that and that there will be things that prove naive or that I'll also change my mind about or be proven ignorant about. And all I can do is really like mitigate against that and try to tell the truth of where I'm at the best I can. And I should note that I
1: got that anecdote about uh, writing memoirs under 40 from the New York Times, from this New York Times article I read once about how people under 40 will inevitably say too much. So I just think it's comical because I remember reading that and chuckling like, yeah, (laughs) but Rachel, you say a lot in your memoir, but hearkening back to what I said when I was introducing you a few minutes ago about how personal narrative can be an important vegan ingredient in social change, Tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of putting aside our egos or self-consciousness in the interest of getting across an important message.
2: I think that my time working at Bustle, when I started writing about veganism from a personal angle, I saw how much it was resonating with people and just getting clicked on and shared. And then when I went on to work at Mercy for Animals, I continued to write and help edit and disseminate Personal narratives around veganism, and and saw once again how yes, writing articles that were more informational that would you know search well in Google also very important. But personal narrative—that's how we communicate as humans. You know that's what makes such a huge emotional impact, and and probably at this point even more than books, it's it's TV and movies that really have the capacity to change culture. And we we look at. The gay rights movement, for example, and how important having media depictions of queer people who have always existed, but you know, for them to be characters on TV that are beloved was really important to gaining certain rights. So I think that when it comes to veganism, obviously people are so defensive. There's so much cognitive dissonance. Vegans in pop culture are often just kind of the brunt of a joke. And then we understandably are trying to advocate for the animals and perhaps overcorrect. And I was a huge perpetrator of this of when I first went vegan. I was just so excited. I did feel a lot of health benefits. And so I was just writing a bunch of pieces on Bustle about, you know, how it fixed my digestion and like even how it, you know, solved my body image issues, which talk about regret. Oh my God, I wish I could take that one down. So I felt like I had to address that a lot in retrospect in the book, which we can talk about later. But, you know, that's all to say, like, I think that at first, the first impulse when you go vegan, you're so excited. You just kind of want to like depict it as this perfect thing. And then the longer you're sitting with it, you're like, oh, I'm still here with all my issues. And also this is really difficult sometimes. So I think that having just more complex vegan characters and narratives and and telling our stories if we're writers or producers of TV or movies, writing complex, flawed vegan characters is so important because everyone thinks we're just like trying to be perfect with sticks up our asses anyway. And it's like, nah, let's, let's show that we're flawed human beings who also struggle in our relationships and do fun things and that this is not necessarily like a lifestyle of abstinence and and purity that we're just like you you know <laughs> that that's actually a very important message to spread so that people can imagine oh okay maybe being vegan is is part of this overall um lifestyle of openness and connectedness and progressivism.
1: I love that. It's not just about, you know, books about veganism or books where the veganism of the main character is the main point, but it's just books that have vegan characters or movies that have vegan characters. And that's how we normalize it. So before we get into the Rachel, the new vegan who stars in Open, let's talk about your career so that we can contextualize your work for our listeners who might not have heard of you. And you already started doing that. You've joined me in the past on Our Hen House to talk about media and animal rights, including how to pitch mainstream media animal rights stories and how to embed veganism in your articles. Can you give our listeners the elevator speech about your history working in media specifically, not necessarily vegan media?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the short version is I I started with YR media in radio when I was in high school and then throughout college and was able to work on some really intense radio pieces and investigations that I was lucky got me a lot of awards and attention, but kind of made me realize by the time I graduated college that that sort of investigative reporting was not quite for me, that I had a deep interest in diving deep into topics and being a reporter, but wanted to focus on the personal being political. And then I went to work at the Daily Beast and from there got recruited to start a then unnamed website, which I went on to name, which was called Bustle and was one of the founding editors of that. And that quickly became one of the most popular, at least in terms of traffic websites on the internet and in women's media and ended up having just this huge platform to write about all kinds of different things around, you know, later veganism, but also just women's health, sex and relationships, mental health, all kinds of things. And then from there, I ended up working for Mercy for Animals and was their lead writer. So doing writing for the organization, but also sort of working on the vegan beat, freelancing, writing articles related to veganism as a as a strategy of helping to disseminate information into the public and also mainstream it to a degree. And then I very hesitantly left that job so that I could write this book.
1: And you just sort of glossed over the awards. I just, I have them here in my notes. So you were the recipient of the Peabody Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights International Radio Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, and the Edward R. Murrow Award for your work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. That's, that's quite impressive, especially to think that you did all of this in your 20s. And in fact, a lot of it in your early 20s or, or maybe even earlier, now that you're saying that.
2: Now, do you remember that call when we first connected? I do. I do. And it's like, what a... Argument for reaching out to people you admire because I had read your memoir and, you know, listened to our hen house and senior writing on veg news. And I was just like, Oh, she probably won't have time to talk to me. But I was at the time thinking of making the transition from, you know, working for for-profit media to working for mercy for animals or some other vegan, uh, nonprofit. And you were kind enough to talk with me about your journey. And we just, hit it off and you were moving to LA, which was great luck for me and our friendship mm-hmm. developed from there. And I feel so lucky that I connected to you and that you reciprocated. And for everyone who's a fan of Jasmine listening to this, just so you know, being her, one of her best friends this is as awesome as you think it <laughs> is. Like she's incredibly busy, but she will <laughs> always pick up the phone. Like if you're in crisis somehow, like, even if it's like, I've, 10 minutes but yes tell me what's happening <laughs> with your personal life drama or with whatever it is and is just such a solid friend so definitely reach out to your idols oh my god <laughs> jesus christ well thank
1: you for those of you tuning in i was the senior editor at veg news i got the call which i took from a friend's car in the parking lot because for some reason someone decided having open concept offices was a good idea and Uh, There was never any privacy. And then it was you on the other end, Rachel. And as I recall, you were reaching out because you'd been working in feminist media and mainstream media, and you wanted advice on shifting into animal rights work full time. I kind of remember giving you advice, but also wondering why you'd want to step down from a mainstream-friendly job where you could get animal rights stuff into the zeitgeist in a way that so many vegans who work in the movement wish we could. So despite my advising you to stay in mainstream media, (laughs) You joined us on the animal rights side of the fence. What was
2: that career shift like? Oh, it was great. I mean, I was so much happier. I think Mercy for Animals was a great place to work. You know, it was remote, which I was so much happier with. My boss, who I worked with, uh, Kenny Torella, who's now an editor at Vox, was just amazing and so collaborative. And, you know, I was able to really work with them to do what they needed in terms of writing at the organization, but also they were really open to new ideas in terms of, okay, it's basically impossible or very difficult to make a living as a freelancer (laughs) these days on the vegan beat or on any beat. But I was like, I saw how these articles were searching well. People were clicking on them. I think editors would want more of this content. They just don't have people to assign it to anymore. And there's probably not that many people pitching high quality stuff. So MFA was very open to me using my time at work often to work on those articles. And sometimes or often those would plug Mercy for Animals in a creative way or interview a source from Mercy for Animals, but that we kind of were doing some innovative stuff in terms of You don't need all press to be like directly a press release promoting your organization. You can be much smarter about what you're pitching and pitch an article that's much broader. For example, I did one for Vox that was really took a lot of research and help and collaboration on on what all the labels actually mean, which is very little in terms of, like, grass-fed and humane and certified. And, and we just broke it down in an incredibly factual way that took a while that I would never have probably done on my own. And one of the sources in it was for Mercy for Animals, but there was other people, too, you know? And and now that's, like, when people are Googling what is any of those terms mean, that's the first result that comes up is a factual breakdown of, like, pretty much much less than you think, if anything at all. And so I think that kind of work has tremendous potential reach and value in terms of educating the public, because especially a few years ago, you were Googling so many questions and it would just be from a speciesist point of view that an answer is coming up, or it'd be like a vegan blog and it's not particularly well researched or it's not linked to credible studies and stuff like that. So to create really high quality content, which now sentient media is really at the forefront of that, which we're both on the advisory board for is so important.
1: And that article that you just referenced was so helpful when I wrote Fabulous Vegan, when I was on the labeling chapter, and I was just googling around and I actually didn't at first notice that you wrote it. And then I'm like, you know, like, Oh, my God, this isn't Oh, it's Rachel. (laughs) So we get into a lot of this on the last interview you did with me on Our henhouse, And not to distract myself from your new book, I do strongly urge listeners to listen to that episode with Rachel. That's episode 476, and it's a great one. So switching gears back to open, and for those listeners who will read it, please note there might be some spoilers here, but we'll keep them to a minimum. Let's talk about how your veganism plays a role in your character development throughout this book. And by character development, I mean the development of
2: Rachel, of you. So that's weird. Is that weird? <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm used to it now, you know. I think Catherine Angel, who writes a lot of great essays that I love, she writes that some sort of conception or ability to separate uh, from this idea of self as me and not me is necessary for any good first person writing. And and I think any of us who do that are, are familiar with that, um, approach. I love, I love that.
1: I hadn't heard that. Well, this book largely centers around your relationship with Adam, who became your primary partner for several years. And okay. So I feel like I have this wrong. Was Adam vegan first or were you?
2: No, he was vegetarian when I met him. And I, and I kind of bring this up very early on in the book is one of the examples of the ways veganism and vegetarianism is just part of the story, but is also kind of woven in seamlessly, that on our first date, he asked me, so why do you eat animals? And I was like, oh, well, I don't that much, you know, just... Some some tuna and some turkey bacon, you know, it was whatever. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, here we go. You know, I was very defensive and had almost nearly discounted his profile because he was vegetarian, because I had dated a vegan a few years before. And it was the only relationship where I felt even like mildly strung along when, And So I'd left with a prejudice that men who care about animals must not care about women. And he just asked me that straight up and and I was like defensive. And then he was like, Well okay, but do you feel like you have a moral right to like consume another life for your pleasure when you don't need to? And I was just like, I guess not when you put it like that. And he just kind of asked gently, well, so why do you do it then? And I said... I don't know, maybe I won't anymore. And I'd known vegetarians all my life, but no one had ever held me accountable like that before, asked me the question directly. And I was just one of those people of which I think there are many who really all I needed, I'd been very uncomfortable in many ways my whole life with eating animals. I just needed that that littlest of pushes or mirrors held up To stop. And I just stopped that day, um, which I guess is kind of unusual, but also I don't think actually totally unusual. So, yeah, it was important to me to include that anecdote from a storytelling perspective, but also from an advocacy perspective. I was like, I'm going to pay that forward by asking the reader who's not thinking they're picking up a book about veganism or vegetarianism, they're going to be posed that same question just by reading the scene, you know, And, and hopefully at least one person stops eating animals as a result. And then with him about six months in, he told me about Earthlings, which he had shown in his classes before, but he was not vegan. And after I watched Earthlings, I just turned to him and said, okay, we have to be vegan or I do. (laughs) And he was like, no, you're right. And we went vegan after that. So I I guess he turned me vegetarian. I turned him vegan.
1: Okay, so this is a meta question for you. You just mentioned that you had hangups about a a straight guy who's vegan. How do you you feel about that now? How do you feel about the Rachel who had those hangups?
2: Oh, well, I understand why she did. I would say that I included that line in the book to kind of make it clear I too had that prejudice, that defensiveness so that the reader who's not vegan or vegetarian can relate to me more as I transition. And also, cause I think it is just true and kind of funny, but I definitely hesitated about including that line because I was like, oh no, what if I end up just like reinforcing that for certain people or they'll be like, yeah, that did prove true or whatever. I would say in my experience, that has been no more true of vegan men than any other man, I would say likely on average, they're more likely to be feminist or empathetic because they're just tapped into a greater level of empathy and thinking about the quality of all bodies and the liberation of all bodies. So if anything, I think vegan men are usually ahead on that count. But of course, as we've seen in the movement with people being called out, you know, it's not it's not by any means like a guarantee that you're not going to be very hypocritical when it comes to treating women. So, yeah, I don't know. I I look back on that and I think it's kind of funny, but I understand why I was worried about it. I also think it was yeah, misguided.
1: Rachel, this question is a tough one to ask, but I'm going to go there. You, you have a lot of humility in your book, a lot of openness, as it were. You present yourself as flawed but trying, complicated and traumatized, but also in relentless pursuit of self-growth, healing, and avenues for goodness, both self-directed and outwardly directed. And then there's Adam, who you also present as a full person with complexities and great intellect, but also many flaws, flaws which you have immense compassion for, sometimes more compassion than I would have since I'm your protective friend here and it's hard for (laughs) me to watch you be hurt. I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say that you have an entire chapter on gaslighting and for good reason. That said, and this is where the complicated question comes in. It's hard for me to wrap my head around how with all of the pain you experienced with and sometimes because of Adam, nobody said relationships are easy. You were also brought to this beautiful gift of veganism, which was initially inspired by his comments about eating animal flesh. Can you parse this out for us, how do you make sense of the fact that this guy who brought you to your knees time after time also presented you with a reason to devote your life to helping animals?
2: Well, I guess I feel like people come into our lives at a certain point because, uh, not because it's fated or something, but because they're meeting us where we're at. And I very much don't regret anything about that relationship, including any of the pain, even though I wouldn't want to go through a lot of it again. I'm so indebted to Adam, as I call him in the book. That's not his real name. But I just think that so many wonderful things came out and so many lessons came out of that relationship for me. And foremost among them that I'm grateful for is probably bringing me into vegetarianism and then veganism and helping open up my eyes around that but also around, yeah, non-monogamy and that those, those two things were not unrelated for me. And I kind of talk about that in the book, even about how when I first went vegan was around the same time that I came out as being in a non-monogamous relationship, and I couldn't help but notice that people's reactions were often very similar, which is that they would say like, oh, yeah, I've wanted to try that, but I'm too weak good for you. (laughs) Or, you know, but I noticed that there was much more fragility and defensiveness around my veganism with your average New Yorker than there was around my non-monogamy. With the non-monogamy, people would often seem almost relieved. Like they could now tell me all their secrets and tell me the truth of their their deepest longings or their secret queerness or kinkiness or (laughs) whatever else and just start confessing all kinds of things because I was also now somehow deviant. And I think what I realized through that is like, wow, a lot more people are non-monogamous than you think, not just like in their heart, but in practice, but are are obviously closeted about it. And that, yeah, there there is a lot of overlap, even in terms of the potential reasons to try both or just the history of women's bodies and animal bodies being treated as property. And certainly for me, the the reasons to go vegan and what I saw in Earthlings were foremost watching that as a feminist. And then when I later learned, you know, from the non-monogamous kind of (laughs) seminal book, Sex at Dawn, their central argument is kind of that women's bodies and therefore monogamy became popular with the advent of the agricultural revolution. And so I say in in the book, again, very early on, you're introduced to this idea that a new paradigm of I'll trade my daughter for your cow, eventually led to a culture with expressions like why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free. So the two things have always been linked. And I I see that still playing out today. So anyway, that was, I just went on a tangent from what you asked me, but I'm incredibly grateful for everything that relationship taught me.
1: That's, there's so much in that, that I, I am curious about. I totally don't, see my those more sort of roller coastery relationships that I've had. I I, I don't see them as, oh, I have no regrets. I see <laughs> I have so many regrets. Aww. I don't understand the concept of not having regrets. I mean I I understand it on like a deep spiritual level, I guess. Like, oh well, I became who I am because of that. But I, I more think, well, you know, I have learned lessons as a result of that. But that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. I was necessarily acting the best way I could. But that's that's sort of a uh, separate conversation about the <laughs> idea of regret. Okay, but back to Adam, just a couple more questions on this on this line. And I know that these are tough ones, so I promise we're almost done with no, this part. Funny. Do you think it's at all harmful that his character, who might not be universally liked or appreciated by your readers, is vegan?
2: Potentially, yeah. but that was the truth of what happened, right? So, and just in the same way of I worry, you know, will it be harmful that I'm talking openly about struggling with an eating disorder as a vegan, even though I make very clear that those tendencies existed before I went vegan. And then I show how they went away for a while after I went vegan and then resurfaced as things in my life were getting more stressful and difficult. But I'm not really interested in whitewashed depictions of anything. I'm interested in truthful ones. And I think that, honestly, for any marginalized group that's uncomfortable, but ultimately more beneficial. And there's, again, interesting overlaps with non-monogamous communities. You know, people who are non-monogamous have almost no or no really civil rights. So you can lose your kids, you can lose your job, and it can be totally legal. And so there's a lot of defensiveness in that community as well and hesitance to tell stories of realities of when it turns out to be a mess or when it turns into really even darker situations than a mess and to kind of depict it as this happy thing or, you know, just kind of how-to manuals. But I feel like that also does a real ultimate disservice because if we don't talk about the places where things can go awry or be very, very difficult, you have people feeling like they're trying to do this and they're just struggling on their own and they're feeling like freaks because they're struggling with jealousy or because they're in an abusive scenario or whatever. And I think this a similar thing can go for the vegan community. If we don't talk about the realities of, of course, some of us struggle with eating disorders and, and the subtleties of that is not the same thing as veganism. But of course, because many people suffer from diet culture and fat phobia of course there's gonna be those issues people are gonna just feel so much more shame and alone and like they can't talk about it's not it's not doing a service to veganism because we look like we're above it all and trying to portray ourselves as perfect and it's unrelatable and it's lying and it's also not doing a service to people who are actually vegan and are feeling like oh my god i can't talk to anyone about this because if I do or I tell the truth, I'm going to make veganism look bad. And so you just further hide what's the truth of what's going on or what's difficult. And shame is a very destructive emotion, I think.
1: We're going to get into eating disorders because I have so many questions and thoughts on, on that as it touches veganism. Were you ever afraid that Adam's veganism would be seen as a, a bad thing somehow or maybe that his influence on you, a lot of which was manipulative, or at least that's how I saw it, would be universally categorized as coercive and that his influence on your decision to go vegetarian would be wrapped up in that same category of bad thing to non-vegan readers?
2: Maybe. Yeah, I'm concerned about that. I think there's definitely that potential, but also anyone who reads the whole book will see the scene of me turning to him and saying we have to go vegan. And I think that I sort of took an effective altruism approach to my advocacy where I was like, Okay, in telling the truth <laughs> about all these things, honestly, there's gonna be some people who read and say, see, I knew, you know, a non monogamous relationship is just XYZ thing of a man doing this to a woman that you'll read about, you know, certain stereotypes confirmed. Or I knew veganism was just this or that, you know, and people with it have eating disorders. But I think for every person who reads that, they'll also hopefully be like three who are exposed to all these other complex ideas I'm introducing and who are relating to me and who are being exposed to vegan arguments who would never pick up a book about veganism. I think I also realized in my advocacy that I was sort of operating almost at peak in terms of like perfect job. They're letting me freelance on the vegan beat. I'm publishing in these big outlets that are ranked high in search, making a difference that way. But also just knowing the reality of like how many people are actually reading on the internet versus what is the potential impact of if I am lucky and this book hits in any way or is Mm -hmm. knock on wood developed into a TV show or movie and it reaches far more people that way than any book would. What is the potential impact of just having a vegan character that's that popular and complex and sexy and all these things out there. And also the subsequent platform that it might give me because anything I write about is always going to have veganism woven into it because that's part of the whole point. It's part of just like how I approach life now the same way that anything I write, no matter the topic, is going to have Romance and sex woven into it. It's going to have Buddhist thought woven into it. It's going to have anti racist right. ideas woven into it. It's just part of how I see the world and look to continue evolving. So I sort of just feel like, yes, that's inevitable. There'll be some harm, but hopefully, what I'm gambling on is that there's some success that gives me more of a platform to talk about these issues. If, than it would if I just stuck to writing about veganism, like eating animals. He wrote that after everything is illuminated and not as many people at all would have read it, even yeah. though it's a very good book, if he had written it first. You kind of, you need to bring other people into the fold and, and create a very large tent of people who are interested in hearing what you have to say.
1: And it makes me think of when you mentioned that you had previously dated a vegan and that left a bad taste in your mouth. And then you met this guy who was vegetarian and and suddenly questioned you about what you were eating. And you were suddenly like, oh, right, good point. <laughs> it, so like, it echoes what you're saying will be the experience of readers. Some of them will read this and be like, of course, I'm going to go vegan. And some of them will read it and be like, See. It kind of depends on where they are, but we we advocates like to believe it's all planting a seed. Let's stay on the subject of non-vegan readers because I feel that's one of the best opportunities your book presents and is one of the reasons we wanted you to come on to our hen house today. Despite my last question, I think your book presents a tremendous amount of intrigue for your readers to join you on the plant side (laughs) because your memoir is such a beautiful depiction of a young woman coming of age, finding herself, her truths, and letting go of toxicity relentlessly and ultimately with grace. So it's the things that stick, that you hold on to, that wind up being representative of your true, whole, authentic self. And veganism is toward the top of that list. While you were living this whole ordeal, Rachel, describe for me what your relationship with veganism meant to you.
2: Well... I suppose it was kind of one of the few things that I didn't doubt during this period in my life. Like, you know, like a lot of vegans, I, once I made the switch, I just felt an immense relief of cognitive dissonance that had always been there. And even though I was questioning everything, it was kind of one of the few choices I had made that it just continued to make total sense to me. And so even though I was struggling with, you know, maybe the most skillful ways to talk about it in my writing or with still body image issues, the veganism itself as a lifestyle and a way to continue living provided a structure that I really needed and and a sort of empowering message to myself every day of like, there's so much that's not under my control or that I feel increasingly powerless over or confused about. And this is not one of them. It just kept being something every day that that made sense that only had positive benefits for me, really.
1: So do you secretly or maybe not so secretly want your readers to go vegan from reading this?
2: Yeah, that would be great. I think that would be awesome, or at least to plant the seed and to certainly maybe examine some of their own biases around around veganism and to just have a different idea of like, oh, okay, this is not just nothing wrong with straight edge vegans, a lot of respect to them, but also here's this character who's doing all kinds of very adventurous things and is, you know, like smoking too much weed and all of that. And she's also vegan. So this is clearly not just about like, you know, a lifestyle of purity and abstinence at all. So, yeah. Open
1: is a story about a woman who is exploring her sexuality and relationship style in ways that most people are afraid to do. For you, this took the shape of polyamory. Your story gave us a front row seat to intimate conversations with your partners and friends, including men and women and those who are trans and non-binary. It took us to sex clubs and swinger resorts and even to your therapy sessions. And since at the core of that is a young woman who was concurrently coming to terms with her own inner demons, food and body image played a strong role in your book. So I'd like to talk about that with you, Rachel. So many of us, especially women and those in the LGBTQ communities can relate to struggling with food and body image, especially when we were young. And like so many of us, including you, you struggled with disordered eating. Before we chat about how this touches on your veganism, can you tell us a little bit about how that disordered eating played out for you.
2: Sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you also mentioned that, especially for those of us who are queer, that we struggle with this. Something I didn't realize until researching for this book is that queer women are twice as likely to suffer from eating disorders as straight women. (laughs) And that is not as well known a fact as it should be at all. And yeah, along with a bunch of other things about bisexual women in particular being at a higher risk of substance abuse, mental health issues, and sexual assault, higher than gay or straight populations. And that's not talked about nearly enough anyway. But anyway, for me, I'd been thin and formed a lot of self image around being thin until my early 20s. I gained a little weight and was probably just not thin for the first time and found this. Kind of unacceptable and ended up going gluten free. This was before I was vegetarian or vegan, obviously, and just began much more of a sort of orthorexic, binge, exercise, exercise kind of cycle of just thinking about food way more than I wanted to, feeling like I was deprived, feeling like I had to keep my weight in a very narrow range in order to be attractive, an incredibly narrow range, really. And it would just kind of go through ups and downs. And then when I met Adam, I was kind of still there a little bit. And when we fell in love, and he was just an amazing cook, and I was eating vegetarian, I, for several years... And then especially after we went vegan, I was like, I cured myself. Like I, you know, like I really wasn't worried about it anymore. I wasn't thinking about it at all. And I was just feeling so good in my body. But, you know, also had like flat abs and all this stuff because I was still exercising a fair amount and eating a pretty whole foods, plant-based diet. And so it began to creep back in you know, towards more the second half of the relationship as things started to get more difficult, as I started to feel less desired, as I started to feel less of a sense of control over my life, of course, those behaviors resurfaced. And in my case, like, it was a pretty orthorexic way of like, I started to feel that anything but his cooking was somehow deviant or unhealthy. So we would go out to eat and I would feel like I needed to exercise afterwards to, you know, like cancel it out. Or I'd feel like, oh, I had too much salt and feel disgusting or whatever. And he was also had some of his own issues around that. And so that kind of fed into it. And I think I just started, (laughs) we moved to LA. So I was exercising a lot and, you know, everyone was kind of some form of disordered eating, it seemed like, who I met and, and body image. And I, I think that I started having more shame around it because I was like, oh my God, I've written this stupid shit on the internet that's gonna live forever saying that this, that veganism fixed it for me. And here I am right back where I started and just feeling so much guilt, but also feeling like I couldn't really talk about it because sometimes when I would even Google about it, is there vegan eating disorder treatments or like people talking about this? A lot of the times the things I found were quite shaming or or claiming that veganism is an eating disorder. And I knew it wasn't that for me. I knew these tendencies were here long before. If anything, veganism had had made them a lot better for a lot longer and and helped me keep a constant, at least greater perspective about what eating could be about more than just my body and whether or not I'm getting fat, but about like, you know, I think I'd written not not just about like what food does to me, but what is done to my food. So if anything, I think overall it helped. But but of course, to pretend like it couldn't overlap or that it was just a magic fix was my own naive, wishful thinking that I regret and try to set the record straight about now.
1: Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so much I relate to in what you said. And I think a lot of people, I'm mm-hmm. really grateful you're going there. I am not only lucky enough to be interviewing you right now, but I have been truly honored to be on the other end of of so many phone calls throughout the process of this book coming to fruition. And I know that you were fearful of how your veganism would be received by readers since it was being pitted against your disordered eating. Were you or are you worried that people would conflate the two?
2: Yeah, I think, again, some people will. But I'll have more opportunities to use whatever platform, you know, to be interviewed to hopefully help other people in this situation feel less alone and to clarify that being vegan is not an eating disorder. But of course, like for anyone, just like being an omnivore (laughs) or whatever, a consumer of flesh is not an eating disorder. Of course, there's going to (laughs) be... People who are omnivores who have eating disorders, obviously, you know, and I think to pretend that people who are vegan would never be susceptible to that strikes many people as an obvious lie and disingenuous because, of course, we're people who are able to stick to a certain moral code around our food, mm-hmm. a certain discipline. And of course, that's going to be personality types who might be even particularly susceptible to, you know, projecting other moral values or control onto food in general. But like much in the book, there's a lot of shades of gray and and just the same way as I'm showing how a non-monogamous relationship, the central one in many ways is confirming a lot of the negative stereotypes. I'm also depicting all the ways it subverted them and And hopefully showing the beautiful things about it and the complex things about it and showing other people who are practicing in a different way. So, yeah, I'm just not interested anymore in in whitewashing anything or being dishonest about anything. And that doesn't mean my thinking won't continue to evolve or get more complex or ever be wrong Mm -hmm. in retrospect. But I just I want to help create a culture of less shame around any of these Issues because it's just not it's not helping anyone.
1: I want to go back to something you touched on before regarding eating disorder treatment. I just this is somewhat of an aside but interesting place to put it. I got an email from a friend recently who was very taken aback by a description of an eating disorder clinic. And so I'm just gonna read you a little bit of it. It says, at Alsana. We recognize that vegan clients deserve a safe and welcoming place to begin or continue their recovery journey. For a client with an eating disorder, a commitment to veganism may proceed or intertwine with eating disorder behaviors. Alsana offers a vegan menu with balance and variety to fully nourish the body while honoring client beliefs that transcend eating disorder behaviors and work together to separate and heal those that do not. And it goes on and on. But the point is, I was so happy that that this exists because I do have a lot of friends or, you know, throughout the last couple decades who have gone into treatment centers. and frequently it is it is conflated and it is treated as a bad thing. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. I know people, including a friend who was very, very sick with a very serious case of anorexia, who refused treatment because she was an animal rights vegan. Mm-hmm. I don't have a question here, but do you yeah. have a reaction?
2: No, I'm glad you mentioned that. And Alsana is actually great. I found them through an article in the Washington Post that I thought was very well done about veganism and eating disorder overlap. And, you know, where someone from Alsana had mentioned that on average, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how they track this, but a vegan would self-report that if they were kind of first seeking help for an eating disorder. And we kind of told that the veganism was the eating disorder. It would take them an average of two years to try to seek help again. And when I read that, it just Gosh. broke my heart because it reminded me of myself. And it reminded me of all of these people out there and just how, yeah, like we need to start talking with the eating disorder recovery community and making it clear because even some of my favorite books like The Fuck It Diet, for example, is so much and is so good. But she also says some kind of vegan shaming things that are very um, alienating and that I would have to like just kind of take from it what was good, but also like just feel totally pulled out of it. And like, I'm not welcome in the club somehow if I'm vegan because you're just thinking that's more eating disorder behavior. But I think there's a lot of a growing number of nutritionists you can find who are both plant-based and into health at every size and healthy eating behaviors. and, And yeah, Alsana is also one of the few places I've found where they actually host a free weekly Zoom on Fridays. You can find on their website that's an eating disorder support recovery group. And eating disorder recovery is incredibly expensive. Most people, you know, it's not necessarily fully covered by insurance. And so I always think they're really great for not just having that on their website and awareness around it, but hosting that free zoom, which, you know, I attend sometimes and have found very helpful.
1: That's great to know. I didn't know all of that about it. Yeah, okay. So my next question that I, I wrote, I think is actually wrong and I'm going to read you the wrong version and then you can help me to correct it. Here's how I wrote it. Ironically, your veganism had the opposite effect for you. Like me and like so many others I know, I've heard you allude to the fact that your veganism actually freed you from disordered eating. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the wrong version. <laughs> what would what would the more correct version of that look like?
2: The correct version would be like for several years, it appeared to have freed me from disordered eating. And then in a period of extreme stress and yeah, a situation where I felt like I was slowly losing control over my own sense of reality and mind and was dependent on marijuana for the first time in my life, um, not able to abstain, that it it resurfaced as one of several unhealthy coping mechanisms to have a sense of control. And it's no surprise that it did. And since emerging from that experience has continued to be a process of, of just day by day learning to have a healthier relationship with food and my body again. And I guess less rigidity than I, I came to have. And just also recognizing that that's a tendency in me that has existed since my early 20s and probably would have existed earlier had I not been very, very thin as a teenager or a kid and just having compassion for that and and knowing it's going to be a lifelong work and journey of continuing to keep an eye on it and have a a healthy relationship with food in my body as much as possible.
1: I have found that the mental shift from feeling like I overcame this thing, whether it's disordered eating or like my anxiety or like my fear of abandonment or like insert the blank here, going from that I overcame it to, oh... It's just going to always be here with me. And it the work is managing it. I found that very freeing. So I like the way you worded that. And since relationships are super complicated, and since your partner throughout the book, Adam, was the designated chef, your food and eating weaved together with his hold on you, as you alluded to earlier. And as a result, you relied on him for sustenance. And part of the fallout f- of that was amenorrhea. Your period stopped. Can you help me untangle for our listeners how that kind of extreme bodily reaction to a lack of consuming nutrients is not at all related to veganism?
2: I'm honestly not even sure how much of it was a lack of consuming nutrients so much as stress and overexercising because I actually was consuming a lot of nutrients. It's a, It's a common myth that people with eating disorders, by and large, stop eating or don't eat very much. You know, the book, Sick Enough by um, Jennifer Guiati, I think you say her last name, is really excellent on this, showing how basically most people we would say are on a diet. Mm -hmm. She defines as having eating disorders and it very, very rarely actually looks like stopping to consume food. And in any case, during that time when my period stopped, I got blood work done to make sure my hormones were okay, to make sure I had enough nutrients. And my blood work came back not only normal, but incredibly healthy. And I, was, I weighed less than I probably had since I was 15. And yet my blood work was perfect. And that's something she talks about in her book is like a lot of the time people with disordered eating, their blood work comes back normal or even healthy. And the doctor was like, Wow, you have perfect cholesterol. And I was like, thanks, I'm vegan. And he was like, Oh, that makes sense. That's good. And I remember being like so self-assured of like, see, all my stuff, you know, because I was eating a real um whole foods plant-based diet of champions and probably more vegetables and beans and whole grains than I've ever consumed. And so, yeah, in a lot of ways, I I was seemingly this picture of perfect health, but I was also. Over exercising, incredibly stressed out, too low body weight because anything I ate, I would often just like burn off mm-hmm. afterwards and kind of be in that cycle. So I I don't know. I think that in some ways I was I was healthy, in other ways my body was sending a very clear message of like something is not right here.
1: I, th- there's not a question in in this, but I, you just made me remember that I, I lost a a friend to, I mean, not, she didn't die, <laughs> but she, she stopped being vegan because of exactly what you just, de- like exactly what you just described in her period stopped. And all of her blood work showed that it was great and she was great. And she just was so freaked out by the fact that her period stopped that, you know, she started eating animal products again. This was like an animal, you know, an animal rights, informed person. So I don't know. It's just very sad. And I want to be clear that I think that the way you approached this particular subject in your book was brave and honest. And in fact, this is a spoiler alert. So I'll I'll speak in some generalities, but there came a time when you started to nourish yourself and your period returned. What does that signify to you?
2: I think I had some line that ended up getting cut in the book of like, something to the effect of mother nature's one honest bitch, you know, like (laughs) like she does not lie, especially like in my case, I'll be amazed at how in times of stress or I'm in a particularly weird dynamic with someone, all of a sudden my period will come out of nowhere, be triggered by, by stress or disappear out of nowhere. You know, like I seem to have a very like sensitive response to that, especially since I'm not on hormonal birth control. And so, yeah, there, it's not controlled. It's very much the external factors are having a big impact. So I guess what that all taught me is just to really listen to those signals. You know, if something like your period is disappearing for six months at a time or more, even if your blood work is coming back perfectly normal, what is happening in your life emotionally, that's making that, that occur. I'll, hopefully never ignore that kind of thing again. Not that I was even totally ignoring it, but you know, there was a sort of willful pushing it aside because it wasn't convenient.
1: Yeah. Our bodies, have, I mean, I don't want to get too woo and too off subject from what our hen house is about, but our bodies have so many, there's so many things that our bodies tell us. And for you, it might have to do with your period coming or going or whatever. And for me, it might have to do with my skin breaking out or like whatever our thing is. It's like, okay, there's some message here for us. Let's, let's stop. So tell me before we get off this subject, last question on this subject, tell me about your relationship with your body and food now, like today.
2: It is day to day. It is made in decisions every day in terms of, you know, I write in the book, like that I'm not all better now, but i I know that each moment is an opportunity to write the story in a direction I'd rather read. And so, you know, I really love baking and always have and did a lot of baking over the pandemic, especially in return to the joy of that and the therapeutic nature of that. And I'm lucky to have a primary partner now who really enjoys my baking and who I was able to share that with. And and for me, like, It was really nourishing to be working, writing on this book, returning to these often dark moments or memories of what it was like to deny myself a cookie and then feel myself, you know, kind of triggered by that memory and emerge from the writing and be like, okay, I'm going to go bake something. And just the way it would really calm me and was an important part of my mental health and writing practice honestly and I would kind of process in the kneading of the dough and the stirring things the trauma I was just revisiting and then I would take it out of the oven and and always eat at least one if not more and and just really enjoying it a lot more and I'm I'm really lucky that my partner has been very encouraging with me you know having a healthier relationship with food a more relaxed relationship, encouraging me to see that there's a a wide range of weight that he would find me, you know, attractive under and trying to believe that. So that's helped to like kind of reinforce that. But mostly a lot of the work has just been my own, you know, talking about it more openly in the book with therapists, with friends and attempt to not feel shame. It's been just making those decisions every day to be a little less Rigid, and to um, eat the cookies and not feel like I need to necessarily exercise right after, and to just have compassion if that impulse arises afterwards, or if I feel afraid because you know, my body is changing as it will continue to throughout my life and a desire to control that, to really examine what's behind that desire to control. and And for me, it's really, to examine that is to examine my own relationship with impermanence, with death, with decay, with aging and all of that. And just, I think that with any of those controlling behaviors, it's really about a fundamental discomfort with the fact that we can't control that that our body's going to change no matter what we do. Um, and it's, if we're lucky enough, it's going to grow old and then it will die. And so like, how can I have a re- healthy relationship with that? reality going forward is, I think, always going to be a major theme in my work.
1: You just made me think of an interview we had on uh, several months back at this point of this airing with Issa Leshko, who wrote a book called Allowed to Grow Old. And it's a photography book, and it's just about animals who are allowed to grow old. And I love the turn of phrase, allowed to grow old. And it, it, it just made me think of what you said here, because we as animal advocates, frequently have so much compassion and empathy and, and, you know, adoration for animals. And yet we do not extend it back to ourselves. So like the thought of allowed to grow old, it's powerful to think of it in terms of farmed animals. It's also powerful to think of it in terms of us, like also animals.
2: Yes. I love that. And it makes me think of, I just saw the other day, someone sharing a quote from the late Carrie Fisher, where she says, men don't age more gracefully, they're just allowed to age. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really true and something I really am trying to remember um, of just like, yeah, this idea that men age more gracefully and that it's somehow uh, we believe that because they're biologically fertile for longer and that there's some sort of explanation to that. That a lot of those theories, that sort of evolutionary biology explanation has been historically used to explain patriarchy, used to explain uh, monogamy, used to explain you know dominating animals' bodies. And so really, again, these things have always been connected, especially in the ways female human bodies have been co-opted or desire to control their reproduction. and we see how so much of animal agriculture is based on the exploitation of of female reproductive systems and the controlling of it. We, we can't, um, you know, those of us who have those parts, whether we identify as women or not, we can't like exempt ourselves or we should not exempt ourselves from that same desire for liberation or self-compassion really. And
1: when we're speaking about body positivity and we're extending that to ourselves we're really talking about the the liberation of a an oppressive mindset. So I think that it makes complete and total sense for anyone who stands for animal rights to be practicing body positivity as a, a revolutionary act. It's not actually just about us and our relationship with ourselves. It's about us saying no to this patriarchal mindset. I mean, that's why, to me, fighting against anti-fat bias is hand in hand with being vegan because they're both about body liberation. I didn't have this question planned, but do you feel like this sort of extension of your authenticity that led you to polyamory, which isn't necessarily going to be the same for everyone, but it led you to polyamory? Do you think that the polyam community might find inspiration in the other areas of your spiritual growth and perhaps be more
2: open-minded to veganism. I hope so. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, thank you for being on the forefront of showing how those two things intersect and combating fat phobia as a, as such a public vegan is a huge service to all of us. But yeah, I hope that there's polyamorous people who read it and are like, oh, okay. I did not know that about like animal agriculture being at the the root of monogamy developing and controlling women's bodies. And I, I see that connection now. I will say I, I recently rejoined OkCupid for the first time in, I don't know, three years or so. And granted, this is the Bay Area, so this would probably be like the epicenter in many ways of potentially Non monogamous vegan people. But I was amazed compared to when I was last on three years ago, how many more people were identifying as vegan that it was showing me. And also, not just vegan, but vegan and non monogamous, how often those two things were overlapping. And of course, I know there's some people listening or who hear that and are like, oh God, like what a stereotype of like the vegan who's also like into free love and is like, (laughs) you know, it's this kind of. I see how some people would not want to be associated with that, but I was heartened of, oh, wow, our numbers are growing stronger. There's a lot of people who are, who are getting it on one level or another. And, um, obviously I don't really care in terms of if people are non-monogamous or not in the same way. I just want them to do what's right for them in a sort of different way than my veganism, where I really do hope that everyone would go in that direction. But, um, it was interesting to see how much overlap there was, and that it seems like it's growing. I mean, not surprisingly, but of course, there's a lot more people than three years ago.
1: Yeah, I can see all of that. One thing that we've discussed recently is that you, you're not necessarily saying that being polyamorous is the more, you know, the high, taking the higher road, because as you pointed out, it can be. But so, well, let me stop. You say it in your own words.
2: Yeah. I mean, I talk in the book about how it was easy to fall into that mentality about both non-monogamous relationships and queer ones where I felt like, oh, my relationships with women are more evolved or whatever. And and you and I have talked about that too, of like how it's kind of easy to, to feel that way sometimes because when you're skewing all these social norms and often the patriarchy to participate in a, a queer relationship and or a non-monogamous relationship, it's easy to feel like a little bit more evolved or somehow like superior in that rejection of those norms. But of course, it's also very important to separate the identity from like the behaviors around it because, you know, memoirs like in the dream house, she really talks about her hesitance to talk about abuse in her lesbian relationship because there's this desire to to not talk about it because you don't want to make the community look bad and and you want to kind of, yeah, because it's, it's scary to think you're going to participate in potentially further marginalizing Mm -hmm. your already marginalized community, but that it's really does a disservice to not talk about the truth of what happens to you because of course abuse can happen in any sexual orientation or relationship model, of course. Eating disorders can happen when you follow any sort of diet. Like it's about the behaviors and often the power dynamics that exist within relationships, not so much the models themselves. That in one relationship, non monogamy can be incredibly liberating and a way of overthrowing patriarchal constraints. And in another, or maybe even the same one at different times, it can be a way of reinforcing them or further leading to a sense of kind of counterintuitive entrapment. So you see both those things happening to me over these years. On the one hand, I'm becoming more and more sexually liberated, coming into my queerness, questioning all these things I thought I had to do to arrive at my adult life. On the same token, you see me getting more and more embedded in this very gender normative power dynamic, where the woman is the complete submissive and feels kind of trapped, even though she's within a non monogamous relationship. It's
1: also complex. There's so much <laughs> going on in there. Well, switching gears, one thing that I absolutely loved and thoroughly appreciated about Open, Rachel, was your thorough and creative use of footnotes. They almost read as their own book. And I found myself craving them as I was in the middle of the chapter. I've honestly never seen footnotes used this way. Can you tell us about some of the creative things you included in your footnotes?
2: Oh, thanks. That's so great to hear, too, because I'm always afraid people are just like not going to read them and they're going to miss so much because so much of the context of research and reporting is in the footnotes. Yeah, basically I just didn't have space to contextualize everything otherwise. So a lot of it went into the footnotes, but also a lot of kind of like funny asides or, you know, when I use Yiddish in the book, like the translations of those terms, um, there's a lot of just kind of like hidden jokes or uh, Easter eggs, I guess you call them in the footnotes. So I really kind of wanted to play with the form and, um, and make it that, you know, maybe you're not so sure uh, in the same way with the dopamine hit of when you check, you know, social media, you're like, oh, am I going to have something that gives me some dopamine that hopefully all of it is going to give you some of that. But there's a little uncertainty of like, is this going to be one of the laugh out loud or sexy footnotes? Or is this going to be one of the ones where I'm like learning about, you know, sexual assault and eating disorders? And and hopefully all of those are going to be interesting in a different way, but yeah, I guess kind of my goal is to kind of. Uh, I mean, one review said sedu- that the book seduces and educates in equal measure. And I was really happy to hear that because that's sort of my approach.
1: Well, not only are you a prolific writer, but at this point, you also wear the title of badass animal activist. And that activist mindset is a through line throughout your book as you're regularly and almost poetically outspoken about a number of social justice issues from gender to sexual orientation to anti-racism and more. You kind of hit on everything and, you know, at exactly the right moment, but somehow without ever proselytizing. How do you do that?
2: (laughs) Well, I put a lot of work into it and I was, you know, much smarter than I used to be when I worked at Bustle in terms of Slowing down, doing a lot of research, reading a lot from a wide range of writers from all backgrounds and orientations. And then just also having a number of early readers and people I hired who come from marginalized communities themselves to give me feedback and asking them, you know, after I had done my research, so as not to put too much labor on them, even though some people I, you know, compensated for their time and and paid to consult. Yeah. What is the way that you think would be best for me to phrase this when I really wasn't sure and just asking about that? So a lot of that work you see is, is the result of really collaborating and being, learning a lot about looking outside of my own biases and, and perspectives and just also feeling like, oh my God, I need to check myself here because the more I learned, the more it was just absurd not to provide, um, like actively anti-racist context to some of the stories, um, or anecdotes in the book of just even basic things of, you know, when I'm smoking so much weed and enjoying newly legal weed in California and kind of drowning in free samples as a, as a sex columnist, you know, writing about cannabis. Meanwhile, so many Black and Latinx people are in jail and and getting arrested at disproportionate rates and kind of remind the reader of that and also have the footnotes be very practical, simple calls to action of like, you can go to this website to donate to this organization to fight this, or you can take this action and to further, yeah, a message around abolitionism in general, which I believe in, you know, not just abolition for animals in cages, but people in cages as well. This is
1: such an exposing process, Rachel. Tell me about your relationship with self-care and how you practice it.
2: Oh, man. Well, meditation has been really important. I was very lucky, and it's in the book. One of the many ways veganism is mentioned is that I went, you know, to my first animal rights meditation retreat that's sponsored by the Pollination Project and R.E. Nestle, and led by Monk Tashi Naima. And, and that community has been so important to me. Hopefully, maybe some of them are even listening right now. And um, everything I've learned at those retreats and what an incredible resource for those listening to look up about that retreat, spreading kind of a education around mi- mindfulness and meditation for animal advocates working in the movement so that we can sustain this work and, and not burnout. So I'd say that's key. Therapy, being in a much healthier relationship with a massage therapist has also been great.
1: So basically the key takeaway here is if find yourself a massage therapist (laughs) to get in a relationship with them. One aspect of OPEN that I love is that it's not just an emotional excavation and a deep dive into your journey of becoming an authentic, beautiful, mature person who can stand up for herself in glorious ways, but at the same time, it's a spiritual journey. Your spiritual journey is endlessly inspiring to me, Rachel. What does spirituality, like, what role does it play for you? How does it keep you grounded?
2: I feel like the older I get, the more I'm considering myself a spiritual person proudly. And I guess my... My religion or my church is trees and nature. One of my favorite practices for feeling a sense of gratitude and worship is that I'll go find a place that's private in nature and dance to music <laughs> and just kind of worship the trees. And that's that's my synagogue. That's my church. And yeah, I, I think in my writing and life, like encourage people to find practices that nourish them to expand their ideas of what meditation can look like, that yes, it can be sitting meditation, but also if it's just dancing to trees or it's looking at a baby picture of yourself and cultivating compassion for that baby for like two minutes, any of these things are great practices. And there, there's so many ways to help ourselves come to the present moment, to, to feel a sense of gratitude that I've learned and that I hope I'll be able to pass on um and yeah i don't know just feeling more and more of a sense of trust in the interconnectedness of all life and and beings like i said
1: i'm so inspired it was cool to see your evolution in the book like the rachel at the beginning and then the rachel at the end and see how you got to that there were some really painful moments that got you there but then it gave me hope like oh she got through that that dark tunnel and another thing i mentioned earlier on today is that I am intrigued and excited about the possible reach of this book. Listen, I've struggled, and I know others have too, with how to reach beyond just the vegan choir. Your book is perfectly situated to reach other audiences. In fact, other audiences, including the Polyam audience, as well as just those who are looking for a compelling read about sexuality, are going to be all over this. So do you have any advice for anyone listening to this who is a writer or advocate in general and wants to reach beyond just vegans? Because the animals don't need an echo chamber, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would just encourage you to tell your story and work on it and also to think about how can you tell a story that would be interesting to people who think they don't care about animals yet. And just trust that if you're... A passionate vegan, that message is going to come through. It's part of your story. It's part of the fabric of your life. It doesn't need to be direct advocacy to be most effective all the time. In fact, often that's not the most effective. So, yeah, I think to think really with a storyteller's eye, like what is most interesting about your journey? And that just trusting that message will come through. It might sometimes be complex. Or you might worry, like we've talked about, that it's going to you're going to make certain communities look bad. But I I think that that's necessary. We need complex depictions. We need complex vegan characters and people who are flawed out there um, so that people can relate to it and think, oh, okay, I'm flawed, too. So maybe I could be vegan. They're not just these like perfect, self-important people.
1: Oh, that's such good advice. I love that advice. So as we start to wind down this interview, Rachel, and I promise you we are, can you give our listeners a glimpse of where and who you are now?
2: Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm someone who's excited for this book to come out, who is already thinking about, you know, what should I do next? And how will I do it? Who's always going to be speaking up for the animals and for anyone who might need some speaking up for and who's just in search of truth. And I feel like the more I just continue following how can I feel the most free in my life because I feel so lucky that I've been able to at least so far jerry-rig this career of like getting paid to explore that question. If I can just find a way to make that journey sustainable, through people supporting my work, that I will make it my life's work to pursue that question. And hopefully that journey will be helpful or, you know, will be one that helps destigmatize lots of things. So I'm just still always gonna be searching of like how how can I liberate myself and other beings?
1: Well, I know that for me art imitates life, imitates art. And I sometimes wind up writing about self-growth and then growing in that way. Sometimes the words come to me before the action. What about you? What did you learn about yourself from the process of writing open?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, God, I mean, I just have so much more faith in my strength and resilience than ever before. Like, And is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've done some other challenging or on the you know, face of it, impressive things or just very emotionally difficult things of leaving relationships and starting new lives. But no, this took more perseverance and just relentless self-examination and unearthing of uncomfortable truths. And I just hope it, if it even helps like one person, That'll be worth it to me. And I just need to remember that as I, you know, as we've talked about, as I stand on this precipice and get ready to have all kinds of probably hate coming my way, that there will also be hopefully some love and some people who don't say anything at all, but who feel a little less alone um, reading it. So I just, yeah, I guess I feel like delicate, but stronger than ever before at the same time.
1: Do you have any hopes for what the process of promotion
2: will be? I hope if I can have any interviews that are half as interesting as this one that don't like force me into kind of annoying, cliched corners or like silly things. I'll I'll just try to be myself and be honest. And yeah, I would love to have opportunities to talk about any of these issues, but hopefully veganism, you know, of course, I'll be working it in wherever I can.
1: Well, I can't let you go without asking you what so many people listening to this might be wondering. Are you at all worried about how others who are portrayed in this book will receive it?
2: Yeah, I am. But I, I've I've tried to mitigate against that where I can. And yeah, just to have a compassionate depiction of everyone in the book. And um, it helps that everyone knew I was working on the book and signed releases, so it's not a huge surprise. And I just hope that any readers will have compassion for anyone who's depicted there who makes mistakes in the book, including me, and just sees that I'm, I'm not really interested in blaming anyone or canceling anyone. I really am interested in examining what are the psychological wounds that drive harmful behaviors and just having more nuanced conversations that don't center so much on, on blame.
1: When my memoir came out, people asked me that and I I was panicking a little. And I I went to a, uh, someone I knew who had written a memoir and I asked her how she handled it. And I, you know, my book was largely about my mother. And the person who gave me advice said, well, do you want to have a book or do you want to have a relationship with your mother? <laughs> <laughs> it like, it wasn't, it didn't shake out quite that way, but I always think of that line. Okay, this has been a beautiful and sometimes heavy interview, but let's lighten things up first. What are you excited about these days regarding veganism?
2: Oh my gosh, just how much it's spreading and how much more it's being talked about, how it relates to anti-racist advocacy and how Black vegans are, you know, such a huge and growing part of the movement and I hope to see their voices continue to be lifted up and at the forefront and people like Eric Adams being the likely next mayor and the, the policies that he's going to enact in New York city is very exciting to me and to have Brown. And yeah, I mean, I just think there's so much more awareness growing of how we can't just have like white wealthy people at the, forefront of of advocacy around veganism at all, I think is is what's exciting to me is seeing that shift continue to happen.
1: Where do you see veganism in five years?
2: Hopefully continuing to be a lot more normalized and um, you know, hopefully there'll be like even five times as many vegans to choose from on (laughs) OKCupid. And I'll have changed some of them myself. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think just to see it continue to grow at the rate it has been, hopefully an even more accelerated pace, because certainly that's what the animals need and it's what our environment needs. So, Mm -hmm. Do you
1: remember Veggie Date or or are you too young? (laughs)
2: Uh, No, I did have like veg speed date thing once. And I was just remembering that when you and I were talking the other night, I think, and remembering how, like, I think it was all just pairing men and women together and how, like, heteronormative that was and and thinking how even that is probably different now. Like, I wonder, I know certainly me, I would never go to an event like that and be like, hey, why can't I also be paired with women here? (laughs) And yeah, I bet that that's different now. And and yeah, just seeing how much that has changed as well in my own life and others. So there's just more of a fluidity to everything, hopefully, I think.
1: Well, Veggie Date, I I was like basically just for vegans and it was like a dating site. It was probably 20 years ago, like very early on. And I was on it <laughs> and it was so bad. It was so, so every now and then like someone I know like a rat who's around either my age or who went vegan around the same time as me, will have a moment and be like, yeah, I remember that. And then we'll be like, wait, didn't we date on it? Cause there were like 20 people on it. Where do you see uh, yourself, including your career in five years?
2: Oh my God. I don't know. It's
1: okay to say it here. Just put <laughs> it out there. We won't hold you to it.
2: I mean, hopefully, just doing this still with more people caring what I have to say about animals would be great. Some degree of some more financial stability would be great. But yeah, if I could just keep writing books and helping produce cool stuff and tell stories and lift up voices of um, my friends and other interesting people that I meet, helping them get book deals and other kinds of deals, that would be my, my dream.
1: Well, Rachel, it has been a true joy and honor to talk with you so openly, pun intended. <laughs> I am, as I think you know, in awe of you and your work. And so I'm i am just like beyond happy to be so close to you as you go about your journey. And thank you for writing this book and for allowing all of us in. It uh-huh. is a true gift and so are you. Please, before you hang on with me to do the extra flock content, Please tell our listeners how they can read the book and follow along with you as you put it out there for the world.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Jasmine. Yeah, you can follow me at Rachel Krantz, my name on Twitter and Instagram. And that definitely helps the numbers, the larger platform I have, the the more it kind of creates, I guess, snowball effect and can help create more of a platform for talking about animals, which I will always do. And you can find the book wherever books are sold online or in bookstores from your indie bookstore is great, but I don't want to tell people how to buy books. You can also request it from your local library is a wonderful way to help support the book. And even if you don't want to read it yourself, (laughs) requesting it from your library or ordering it as a gift for someone as an ebook is also a cheaper option and counts all these things. The more people support it, the more it kind of creates an effect where it becomes more visible, which hopefully after this conversation, even if you don't have any interest in non-monogamy or sexuality, that you'll see that I'm really talking about veganism in a more complex and definitely advocacy-based way. And that is something to support would mean a lot to me if people support it. So thank you for anyone who can do that.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. Stay on for our little bonus content, but this has been so
2: fun. Yay, thank you.
1: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's rising.
0: Has it become un-American to make a profit? Uh, You know, I don't think so, but, but it seems like that's the heart of America, actually. But, you know, anyway, this is the question that's being asked by Matt Graves of the Meet Your Markets column on Meeting Place. And he starts off talking about You know, the complaints, uh, you know, from the White House and other places about how inflationary the price of meat, all animal products has become. But then he gets to his real point. In this past Sunday's New York Times, Ezra Klein, a vegan, but don't hold that against him. Actually, I don't hold that against him, Mac. Wrote an opinion piece, The Gross Cruelty of Factory Farming. And he goes on to say, Klein seems to be telling us that it is cruel to efficiently raise food animals for profit, as that by its very definition is factory farming, which is tantamount to greed, no matter its degree of humaneness, as developed, maintained, and verified by independent food animal production experts. You know, <laughs> like that Orwellian sentence, I-, I can't even take the time to deconstruct that Orwellian sentence. It's not the efficiency that makes it factory farming, and it's not the profit, it is the cruelty. And being cruel to animals is greedy. And it's not humane. And I don't know who these independent food animal production experts are, but, you know, look at a video, Mac, and you tell me that's humane. Anyway, his point is that he's concerned. He's concerned about Gen Y and Gen Z consumers. And he points out that veganism, or at least a lessening of meat protein consumption, is an existential and growing movement that must be recognized. Well, yeah, I think it is recognized, Mac. You're not the only one who's worried. Meat marketing mavens must develop methods to convince them that such shame is not realistic. He's talking about the shame of of consumers who hear about the cruelty. That it's not realistic, viable, nor healthy. Actually, it's totally realistic. Look at a video, like I said. It's entirely viable because there's plenty of other things to eat. And it's completely healthy, as we all know. Instead, He points out, they can shamelessly consume animal protein with the full knowledge that it is raised humanely in numbers that efficiently perpetuate the industry, providing nutritious and tasty protein without any gratuitous greed. Only gratuitous greed is apparently a problem. Regular greed is okay. We just don't want any gratuitous greed. The thing I love about this column is they're back to the problem of of humaneness and just saying it's humane is just not going to be enough anymore. We've seen the videos. All right, the other two, two things I found this week aren't about um, humaneness. They don't write about humaneness that much for obvious reasons, but it's about sustainability. From Amanda Radke at the Beef Daily column on Beef.com, will the beef industry ever be sustainable enough? You know what, Amanda? No, <laughs> it won't. For the global elite, she says, sustainability and addressing climate change is a top priority. Well, shouldn't it be? And if you haven't noticed, the anti-beef articles have really ramped up in regards to this topic. Now, there may be many companies and corporations working with ranchers and feedlots who will take advantage of incentives to become more quote-unquote climate-friendly. And if you are an early adapter, you may even find increased profitability and sustainability for your efforts. Well, you know, I'm glad she's, she's encouraging people to worry about it. However, I'm here to say the obvious. And you know, I agree with you, Amanda. It's completely obvious. You'll never be sustainable enough for what they have in mind. Until maybe you're growing crops for fake meat, that is. Just like the animal rights activists who ask for an inch, they'll never be satisfied until they take a mile. And that is completely true. I completely agree with you. The beef industry could never be, you know, ignoring humanity. They will never be sustainable enough because it's inherently unsustainable. Oh, she points out that the goalposts keep moving, and thank God they do. Why aren't we being celebrated for our ability to produce more beef using fewer natural resources than ever before? Is that not the definition of sustainability? Well, no. (laughs) I mean, obviously, that's not the definition of sustainability. Sustainability is, is to be able to, well, you know, in my gross paraphrase, but my idea of it is that to be able to, to produce your product in a way that doesn't cause damage to the earth and that you can continue to do without uh, harming, you know, that you can just continue to do it. And, and it's sustainable. sustain You can sustain it. Not that you're doing less harm than you used to do. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and she goes into nutrition, which, you know, I think is a pretty weak argument for the beef people, but they got to go with the. They got to go with. And then she goes into hundreds of byproducts, you know, and the byproducts of beef. It's true. She talks about that nose to tail use of the animal. They do use every single piece of the animal, but that's because they have to use, they, they come up with ways to use it because there is the dead animal. You can't eat the entire entire corpse. So they come up with things to do. We don't have to have those other things in order to survive. They have to f- find a way to make use of them so they can make more money. Anyway. Uh, my point is, no, she's completely right. You'll never be sustainable. Rick Berman, uh, the Free Range uh, Thoughts column, also on Meeting Place, is also he's, of course, the di- executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom, is also concerned about sustainability and also has, you know, I like the title of his column, which is, is his, you know, New Year's column, 2022 Outlook. You can't spell methane without M-E-A-T. Well, that's a great line. (laughs) What are you talking about, Rick? All right, Rick is trying to make a point here. And I think he just makes so many other interesting points in addition to the point he's trying to make. And he says that the industry should expect increasing environmental attacks. Well, that's for sure, because it's increasingly environmentally harmful. And climate change policy has become a cause celeb of the Biden administration. Yeah, and of the entire world, because, you know, we would all like to survive, maybe. And animal agriculture is squarely in the crosshairs. Once again, you have it right, Rick. It's been tied to 40 to 50% of global methane. Well, yeah, that's the problem. You've got, you, you understand it. Cows are the culprits behind much of the methane production. And now he gets to his point. So far, I'm totally on board. This may leave stakeholders in pork, chicken, or other protein businesses to believe they're in the clear. And what he's really worried about here is that people in the meat industry will have another reason to turn on each other. And, you know, these segments of the meat industry, we may think of them as all the same thing, but they're in serious competition with each other. And he's really afraid that the cow folks are going to be attacked by the pork, chicken, and, quote-unquote, other protein businesses. What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, I imagine that's going to happen. I think it's already happening. I, I really, really, really hope that the other protein business that wins this, um, this attack is not going to be pork or chicken, which involves killing um, even more, even more horrifically suffering animals. But they're waking up to the fact that, you know, there's another reason to separate these industries the lesson, he asks, environmentalists and anti-meat activists will intentionally conflate criticisms of cattle and beef production with all animal protein. Well, yeah, I, I will intentionally conflate them. I do, I do, of course, have to acknowledge, because I pay attention to facts, that, that cattle and beef are by far the worst when it comes to methane and other um, climate change gases. But yeah, they're all bad. They're all not as good uh, for the environment as plant-based proteins. On the activist side, he points out, the Humane Society of the United States has implemented a divide-and-conquer strategy. I wonder what that what he means by that. They are able to target each industry with limited response, as others are lulled by the false sense of security. What's he talking about? The meat industry shouldn't make the same mistake twice. I know that the HSUS is obviously against all of these industries. The fact that they they attack them for different things because, you know, like, like, it's easier to attack the beef industry for, for methane than it is to attract the poultry industry, but it's easier to attack the poultry industry for cruelty. Like, even though they're all damaging to the environment and they're all hideously cruel. But he wants everybody to stick together. I'm sure the cattle industry really wants everybody to stick together. They don't want the pork industry turning on them. And he is reminded of a quote by Benjamin Franklin. We must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Well... I like this. Go go ahead, guys. All hang together. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
1: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at our henhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon smile using our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.